Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Tala. Tala builds intelligent automated assistance for the B2B space. Tala is interested in hiring junior and senior machine learning experts. They're also beginning the search for a CTO. Good candidates will be interested in exploring questions around natural language processing. Great candidates will have previous experience with distributed representations and deep learning. Interested? Send your resume to jobs at thetalkingmachines.com. You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to teach us about expectation maximization. Yeah. So expectation maximization is a way to perform uh, maximum likelihood estimation in certain kinds of models that have what we think of as missing data. It's very important in lots of different machine learning applications. And like lots of good machine learning ideas, it, of course, originated decades ago in statistics. And... Um, it's a little bit funny, and I think there's some confusion around exactly what the EM algorithm is about, uh, because often I'll run into people who are telling me about some system they're, they're building, and they'll describe what they're doing as being EM-like. And what they, what they usually mean is that they're doing coordinate descent in something. And coordinate descent is a kind of optimization where you divide up the variables and you, um, that you're trying to, say, uh, minimize with respect to, and, you, um, and you, you sort of only update some set of them at a time. And EM does that, to be sure, but the fact that you're doing coordinate descent does not mean that you're doing expectation uh, maximization. So let's talk about what EM actually is. So the idea is that we have some kind of probabilistic model in which there are um, variables and parameters, and, the, and there's some variables, some sort of properties of the data that we cannot directly observe. The classic example of this is something like um, a mixture model. So we want to do clustering with a probabilistic model. We imagine, say, that there are several different groups in the data. And each of those groups, if we knew which one, you know, where they were, they would, say, have like Gaussian distributions or something. And then the, um, and now what we actually see, though, is a bunch of, of data that whose groups we don't know. And what we're trying to do is estimate them. And so we might alternate between assigning the data to different uh, possible groups. Say, you know, um, say we have three different groups, three different components in our mixture model. We might alternate between assigning the data to these groups and updating the parameters of the, each Gaussian distribution based on the data that belong to that group. This is a classic use of, of EM. And so the missing data in this case uh, are the unknown assignments of each of our sort of observations to one of the Gaussians. This kind of, um, this kind of missing data arises in a lot of different situations. So um, clustering is one. We can view principal component analysis as having this, this kind of, uh, uh, as being an example of this, where we have um, the data we can see and then there's some low dimensional representation that we'd like to infer, and you can use EM for PCA. Another classic example is something like hidden Markov models where there's uh, the visible time series that we see and we imagine there's some latent discrete state and we can estimate it. Uh, and then there's also things like, and we, you know, we've talked about linear dynamical systems and, and lots of other kinds of things, um, latent Dirichlet allocation for topic models. And anyway, the, the number of kinds of probabilistic models that have these properties is, is essentially limitless. And this is because one of the most powerful sort of tools in our probabilistic modeling toolbox is to introduce the idea of latent properties that we can't see 
So anytime we build such a model to model some kind of data, whether it's you know text or uh, you know uh, or physiological data or whatever it is, we need to be able to have some way to to learn the model, and that probably means imputing this missing data in some way. So EM does this in a particular way um, that has a couple of different views, which I think are interesting um, to think about. And uh, one of them, I think, the kind of the classic view. Uh, is what gives the EM the expectation maximization algorithm its name, which is that we have two different phases that we're going to iterate. Expect the expectation step, where we compute the expected complete data log likelihood, and we have a maximization step, where we're maximizing this function in terms of its parameters. So uh, what do I mean by expected complete data log likelihood? Okay, that's, that's kind of a mouthful. So let's break it down a little bit. So initially what we have is a, we have a likelihood function. The likelihood function is the thing we care about. Um, it's defined in terms of the parameters and it's the probability of the data given those parameters. And the hope is, kind of the inductive principle we're kind of using here, is that by um, maximizing, by choosing the parameters that assign the maximum probability to the data, then that's a good set of parameters. So we're gonna take that as a given for now. The problem is, is that we don't know what all of the data are. And so when we talk about the complete data log likelihood, what we're saying is not just the stuff we can see, but also if we knew what these additional data were, these missing data were, then what would the, what would the log likelihood be? So that's why it's called the complete data log likelihood. The problem is we don't know what those data are. So we throw in, we cook up some kind of approximating distribution to those missing data. So we're gonna invent some distribution over those data. And then what we're going to do is, instead of having the complete data log likelihood, we're going to compute the expected complete data log likelihood using that approximating distribution. So we're gonna average over possible values of those, uh, of those missing data using this, this additional sort of approximation. And so then what we're gonna do is take that and maximize that expected complete data log likelihood in terms of the parameters we care about. And so what we do is we alternate then between improving the parameters given the expected complete data log likelihood and improving this approximating distribution given those parameters in the data. And we alternate back and forth between those and the idea is hopefully that as our, um, as our uh, sort of approximation improves then our parameters get better and vice versa and so then we converge to something useful. Typically, these problems are very hard, and so we converge to some local maximum of the of the um, the, the likelihood, um, and not a global maximum. But nevertheless, they tend to the, these are very popular algorithms. They're very easy to implement for a lot of models that people care about. It also turns out that there's a completely different view on this uh, on these kinds of procedures, which is a really interesting thing which is um, you can also view them as a kind of what's called variational inference. In the variational view on EM, then essentially what you're doing is putting a lower bound on what's called the marginal likelihood. So the marginal likelihood is the quantity we really care about, which is the probability of the data, given the parameters, integrating out all of these, um, all of these uh, missing data. And when we introduce this approximating distribution, we're constructing a lower bound. And then what we're doing is trying to optimize that, that lower bound as a sort of proxy for the thing we really care about. And then you can view the EM algorithm as alternating between improving that lower bound and, maxim and then actually maximizing in terms of the parameters. 
And so this is kind of a nice view because then you can understand exactly what it is that, that this expected complete data log likelihood is, um, is doing. And this, this view uh, called variational inference sort of gave rise to a really broad uh, class of approximate inference algorithms that don't necessarily have to be uh, understood in terms of maximizing the likelihood, but can also be in term, uh, um, framed in terms of approximating entire posterior distributions and, and so on. So, um, so the takeaway here is that expectation maximization is an immensely powerful uh, tool for performing maximum likelihood inference, connecting to variational inference and, and, uh, and other ideas. Um, it happens to be a coordinate uh, ascent algorithm for this, uh, this log likelihood. But all coordinate ascent algorithms for an objective function are not EM. If you're interested in learning more about EM, you can check out our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about the mastery of machine learning. Hi, my name is Patrick Atwater, and I'm a data scientist working at a startup nonprofit on the California drought. My question today is about what constitutes mastering machine learning. Um, you know, we live in a world today where importing the latest and greatest tools is as simple as, you know, import scikit-learn or whatever your favorite library of choice is. And, you know, there's a host, of, you know, huge array of online resources for self-guided learning, continue really great for ongoing professional development. Um, at the same time, there's just some of these, what we're talking about here, I'm constantly humbled listening to this podcast, you know, just how complex and how much there is to know. It's like a lot. Um, and when you're talking about something like classifying cats, it's perhaps, you know, not the end of the world if, you know, there's, you know, people kind of reify the model or their systemic bias or whatever. But when you're, when you're talking about something, you know, like optimizing infrastructure, um, there's very non-trivial consequences. So what do you kind of see as sort of like the, you know, principled best practices in understanding and deploying these tools um, with an eye of like, you know, effective implementation and understanding what 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 really co constitutes um, mastery in this world, where it's, everything is so easily available. You know, machine learning is not something you can master any more than you can master any other kind of intellectual discipline or pursuit, whether it's statistics or applied math or painting or writing or whatever it is. There's always more to learn. Always. Uh, skills to acquire and if you're sort of intellectually honest at all about these kinds of things then all you ever learn is just how little you know yeah so machine learning is no different than any of that and it just happens to be a field that we define by the intersection of computer science and statistics and ai and cognitive science and neuroscience and these these kind of interesting collection of areas it's not something that is that is uh it's not something that's sort of interestingly different from other disciplines and with regard to mastery itself. The, um, and so it's, you, you just need to be always learning, always reading, always rethinking uh, the things you think you know. Um, I think this is, this is, again, true for any pursuit at all, right? You, you just need to 
always wonder what it is that you uh, don't yet understand and what, what things you need to challenge about yourself. You grow over time. You hope to grow. That's the best you can hope to do. Uh, the As far as actually getting a skill set that you feel really good about, the best thing to do is is to... Um, you know, is to build stuff and to try to have an open mind. It's to work with the best people you can and learn from them. It's to uh, try very hard not to um, reject ideas from other areas just based on the fact that they're unfamiliar. This is something that I think is really hard to do, which is to um, appreciate that other people may have very similar and important ideas that just use different language. So this is something that in machine learning people struggle with and trying to understand great ideas from statistics, great ideas from signal processing, and great ideas from sort of the broader areas of mathematics. Um, and I think, uh, and I think we just have to, you have to sort of um, be childlike in the way that you approach it all the time. Um, you know, in, in specific terms, you know, there's obviously training processes you can go through through for machine learning. I mean, there's there's getting a PhD. So that's a, getting a PhD at a respected institution and working with someone who's very good is a way to feel like you understand some some area of machine learning well. You will not understand all of machine learning any more than any researcher in machine learning does. Um, and uh, But one way that you start to feel like you understand a piece of it is when you find that frontier of research and you start doing work that you feel, you know, that is novel. And there's a sense when you're sort of personally pushing the frontier of knowledge in an area that at least maybe you understand some little region of it pretty well, at least as well as anybody else does. Um, but like I said, you still only kind of understand that, that little lump of it and not the whole, not the whole picture. But it is, a way to, it is a way to feel like you have some kind of formal competence um, you know, it, it, but it, of course, depends on what your career goals are. It, you know, that's a way to become a researcher. And it's not it's certainly not something that everyone should aspire to. It's just something that some people find irresistible. Um, I would say I find it irresistible personally. So I guess the main thing that I, I do feel is true is that um, successfully applying other people's libraries and downloading tools and using them without a deep understanding of... Um, of what they, um, you know, of, of what they're doing is not mastery of machine learning. That being good at using these tools is just being good at using tools. It is not understanding machine learning. Um, and this is something that comes up in my, in the courses I, I teach, uh, where I am perfectly happy for students to use these tools um, because it lets them solve real problems faster. But um, I ask them uh, to explain why they made the decisions that they made, why they tuned the knobs that they did, um, and why you know they used this tool versus another tool. And the way to sort of uh, really not impress me in the course is to not understand why you know uh, you use the parameters that you did, or to use defaults without understanding what they are. Um, so I, I think this is kind of a, like a a common theme, which is don't assume that knowing how to use the tools is the same as understanding the, 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 the algorithms and when and where they're going to work. So I think, I think it, just like any other thing, there is no mastery, right? There's just um, knowing more about what you need to know and there's building stuff and, and just um, 
trying to grow within uh, a pursuit. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Quade Morris of the University of Toronto. When we got a chance to talk with him at NIPS in 2014, we asked him first what he's working on now. Uh, what I'm working on right now is uh, tumor evolution. So the problem is, is that tumors themselves are composed of a bunch of different cell populations and individual cell populations respond differently to therapy. They, uh, they're, they're better at invading your body or metastasizing. And it's really important to understand what individual subpopulations of cells are present in the tumor. We don't have good ways of doing that right now. What we can do is we can measure uh, general properties of, of the populations of cells. And then from there, we want to reconstruct what, what individual populations are present or what types of cells are there. And so machine learning provides me a very nice way of, of doing that, from going from these population-based measurements to measurements uh, about, that, about individual cells. So are you working with a specific type of tumor, or is it just like tumors... In it's general, a very general large. problem for tumors. I mean, some tumors this is more of a problem for, and some it's less of a problem for. So, and some tumors it's, it's just so complicated we can't do anything about. Mm-hmm. And some they're so simple that it's easy to do things. You don't need to do anything special. Like prostate tumors are pretty straightforward and simple. Like ovarian cancers are terrible, and they're really hard to do anything about. So what kind of a model are you using to, to address the question? How does, how does machine learning provide you the, the, this, clean, this clean entryway into understanding the different populations? So there's, there's a type of model called a tree-structured stick-breaking process. And it's, it's, a, it's a type of non-parametric Bayesian model uh, for, for fitting trees uh, to, um, uh, to data. And, and we like it because it allows us control over how, how deep the tree is and how wide, how many siblings each, uh, each one of the cancer populations have. Hmm. And we, we, we expect that maybe sometime in the future we'll be able to, uh, to, to learn for specific tumors how wide and how deep the tree should be. So when you, when you use the model, are you using it on one tumor to look at the populations in that tumor or are you using it to compare a variety of similar tumors and their similar populations? How, so how sort of, I suppose from a layman's point of view, how wide does your model go? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, one, uh, one tree, one tumor. Okay. But there's, there, you might imagine that there's a forest of trees, mm-hmm. and uh, trees from uh, similar tumors are similar in some way. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to learn what that type of similarity is. And the model gives us an ability to try to learn where, how uh, tumors from sim- uh, similar tumors are similar. So are you working on developing the algorithms for this model in your lab specifically, or are they coming from somewhere else? So, so the tree-structured stick-breaking process was developed by Ryan Adams. Uh, along with Supin Garamani and uh, I think Michael Jordan. And uh, so we were just using it. We just adapted it to, uh, to our problem. That, that adaptation was done by Shankar Vembu in my lab, mm-hmm. uh, along with help from Amit Deshwar, who has is, who is now take, taken over the project. But we're actually interested in, uh, in looking at different models that contain notions uh, of evolutionary time as well, mm-hmm. so that we could, we, could, we could perhaps figure out how long the tumor has been evolving uh, when, we, when we first see it. And within that work, we're trying to adapt a model called a beta-splitting tree. Mm-hmm. And that's work we're doing with Tay and Levi Boyles. 
So is this something that you would, this, would this be a totally new approach to the question, or is this something you would work into your already existing model? It's, it's a similar approach. It's a different model for the trees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, so, but it's, uh, it's, it's one of these interesting questions in machine learning. Can you make a model that, that fits, you know, how you feel about the, uh, your, your prior expectations that, that are embedded in the problem? And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find the model that's a complete fit to that. So moving to this new model is going to allow you to uh, take into consideration the variable of time as well as the other variables that you've been considering. Yeah, exactly. So, so one of the things it might allow us to do is, is, uh, is it might allow us to better reconstruct the evolutionary history because you know, some evolutionary histories require more time or less time, and we should be able to figure that out from the data. Excellent. And you're working with the members of another lab, yes? Oh, yeah. So that was, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, UI and, and Levi, okay. and uh, they're at the University of Oxford. Excellent. And how are they contributing to your work? So, so Le, uh, Levi's uh, th- uh, PhD thesis was on the beta-splitting uh, tree prior, and so he's, he's adapting some of the things that he, uh, he learned in his thesis as a postdoc in UI's lab to, to this cancer problem. Now, when, when you say things, something to me like uh, predicting tumor populations in, in order to like, figure out which type of cells are, actu- are, are doing most of the growing inside the tumor, that, that sounds like really exciting biomedical research that people are clamoring for in their, probably in their chemotherapy. How, do you, how far along is this and how do you balance people's expectations with the reality of how your research is moving? Uh, I try not to get them too excited because we're we're aiming toward a future where you can uh, where it's very easy to target therapies towards certain cells, uh, which we're almost there. But we're also aiming towards a future where we understand what, what various mutations do. So which ones are, are most associated with metastasis? And it's not clear to me that we're quite there yet. Mm-hmm. So so like. This would be one part of uh, one piece of the puzzle for like something that might be ten years away from having a having a, a way of treating the, uh, tumors. It's based on the individual cell populations mm-hmm. that are there. But like one thing that might be useful right now is that people are starting to think about cocktails of chemotherapy drugs. Right. Right. And and in those cases, uh, people know what mutations more or less the chemotherapy drug targets, and so. So if we can establish whether or not, you know, multiple mutations that could be separately targeted by uh, chemotherapy drugs are in the same cell or different cells, we can figure out how many drugs a person needs or what what should be in the cocktail. To actually tailor it to fit them so it's doing more good than harm. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. That's (laughs) mind-blowing. How long have you been working on this question? Uh, Fairly recently, about two years, two or three years we started. Mm -hmm. It's becoming, it's it's just becoming a, it's... I think people knew ahead of time that tumors were, it's called heterogene, uh, heterogeneous. So mm-hmm. the tumors had a bunch of different cell types in them. Uh, uh, I think people understood this earlier on, but what's become recently clear is, is how prevalent it is mm. among tumors. So is it, is it, do we have any numbers on that? Is it like 9 out of 10 tumors are made up of different cell populations? Uh, I, or I, if just... you ask me in three months, I can tell you. Okay. Like right now, we're looking at 2,000 tumors. Wow. And uh, we're part of a large international group called mm-hmm. the International Cancer Genome Consortium. Mm. And so we're one of the groups looking at these 2,000 tumors. And so probably in three to six months, we'll know what proportion of tumors in general have, have, these, have this property. Wow. That's, that's, an, <laughs> that's moving incredibly quickly for research. Yeah. How, how are you keeping up with it? Uh, 
conferences. <laughs> no one has time to read, so they go to conferences and, and talk to people. And just talk to each other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. So one of the trends that I've sort of noticed in just sort of doing general coverage of this is that a lot of machine learning techniques and, and modeling is being used in biomedical research. Mm -hmm. um, do you do you find that as well, that it's, there's sort of a, a, a great mixing happening there? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean you want to choose your problems carefully. Mm -hmm. So there's... Uh, there's some problems that are sort of boring from the machine learning point of view in that they can be solved with like simple linear regression or logistic regression, very simple basic models yeah. that you learn in your first course of machine learning. But there's some problems that really need a lot of like really complex and interesting models. But it's you, you have to kind of explore around to find those like really, really interesting points. But certainly people within the biomedical research community have these large data sets and they understand that this, the techniques from machine learning will help them analyze their data sets to, to, you know, to extract information or patterns that would be interesting to them. Mm. So there certainly is a very strong desire for people to learn machine learning. Mm -hmm. The people in machine learning, like at this conference, who love complex models, right. you want them to choose their problems carefully so they'll be interested in them. Definitely. Yeah. And how do you find the data sets in biomedical research? Does it, um, I mean, my assumption is that every data set that you get is going to be huge and really noisy and you're going to spend like 75% of the work just trying to like clean it up and get out some sort of signal that you can work with. Um, is my assumption right or yeah, is I, it? Well, I think that's accurate. Mm -hmm. But if, if you want to, I mean, if you want to make more of an impact, you should get closer to the dirty data. Mm. So the people who make the, the greatest impact are the ones who spend this time uh, cleaning up the data, and then they can make the initial observations on the data set. If you just take a data set that someone's cleaned up for you, you know, all the interesting things, or many of the interesting things have already been extracted Someone from that data set. Someone else did choosing. Yeah, so, yeah. and then, then you're making what's, what's known in the field as an incremental observation or an iterative observation, and people won't be as interested in mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think it's worth, like, digging in the details, cleaning up dirty data, because then you're, like, the first person to look at it. Right, right. Right. You're the explorer who discovers the new island or something. And right. that's then all the good stuff is right there for you. Yeah, really fascinating stuff. It's yeah. always interesting to think about these ideas. So cool. So cool. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from Tala. Tala builds intelligent automated assistance for the B2B space. Tala is interested in hiring junior and senior machine learning experts. They're also beginning the search for a CTO. Good candidates will be interested in exploring questions around natural language processing. Great candidates will have previous experience with distributed representations and deep learning. Interested? Send your resume to jobs at thetalkingmachines.com.